And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, December 20th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, a staff shortage doesn't mean you can hire just anyone. Plus, the National Endowment for the Arts takes the pulse of U.S. appetite for the arts. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the State Department sends foreign service officers all over the world. Both the officers and the families they bring with them often contribute to the mission through off-the-clock volunteer efforts. As it does annually, the State Department recently honored the people doing this kind of work. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman reports. For Rob and Kimberly Gudenkoff, a big change in their overseas community started with a simple act, taking in a stray dog. Here's Kimberly Gudenkoff. We rehabilitated him and then realized we couldn't keep him and there was nowhere for him to go. So we were able to find a very small NGO that operated an animal shelter in Ulaanbaatar. And we went to drop him off there and were kind of heartbroken by the conditions of the shelter and decided that we wanted to do everything we could to help them and to help the animals at that shelter. Rob Gudenkoff is a special agent with the Diplomatic Security Service, and Kimberly, before life in the Foreign Service, was a veterinarian with a master's degree in public health. They're both stationed in Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia. It's the coldest capital city in the world. Temperatures can plummet to negative 40 degrees Fahrenheit in the winter. Not having enough or adequate shelter space has life or death consequences for stray animals in the city. So the animals that don't make it to the shelter do face basically very harsh conditions where they freeze to death in the winters uh, or they're shot by contracted hunters. That's how they controlled the stray populations there. So we kind of made it our mission, started raising funds, started gathering volunteers, started working at the shelter and improving the infrastructure there. Before long, the Gudenkoffs created a network of more than 80 volunteers. They've teamed up with international organizations to find permanent homes for dogs in the U.S. and Canada. So far, they've raised more than $40,000 for veterinary care and infrastructure improvements at local animal shelters. This work is also leading to policy change. Mongolia earlier this month passed its first animal rights law. Kimberly Gudenkoff says that's something she and her husband spoke to high-ranking officials about. It's not just the animals at the shelter that we ultimately want to help. It's all of the animals in Mongolia. We are very much trying to encourage change of just culturally how stray animals are viewed there, really encouraging spay and neuter programs. It's because of this work that the Gudenkoffs received one of this year's Secretary of State Awards for Outstanding Volunteerism Abroad. Former Secretary of State James Baker and his wife Susan helped create the SOSA Awards 33 years ago. They honor Foreign Service professionals and their families for acts of public service that go above and beyond their official duties. The State Department held an official ceremony last month at its headquarters to honor this year's award recipients. Secretary of State Antony Blinken told the award winners in a video message that they made extraordinary contributions to the communities in which they serve. They, along with so many of our colleagues across the department, volunteer not for recognition, but out of a sense of duty to do everything in their power to improve the lives of their neighbors in the communities in which they're serving. The State Department is also recognizing another husband and wife team. Ed O'Brien is a Foreign Service officer. His wife, Alicia Krupenikova, is a professional associate for public diplomacy. 
They're both based in Ashbagat, Turkmenistan. Together, they won a SOSA award for their work through a U.S.-based nonprofit called Technovation Girls. It's all about teaching STEM skills to girls age 8 to 18. Here's O'Brien explaining how the program works. It's about a six-month project where they do a curriculum in technology and entrepreneurship. They identify a problem in their community. They research it. They try to find a, a tech solution, usually a mobile app, or, uh, or now they use AI. And then they also study uh, entrepreneurship to make it sustainable. So they actually write a business plan. So after six months, they create this project. They code a real app, and then they have a pitch that they give in front of an audience of judges. It's worldwide, so certain ones that do really well get to advance to a semifinal round that's all done online, and then the finalists, which we hope someday we'll get some out of Turkmenistan, go to California where uh, there's a final event. This year's SOSA award winners included some familiar faces. Krupenikava won a SOSA award back in 2017 for creating a chapter of the same program in Ukraine. She couldn't travel to be at the award ceremony, but O'Brien says they're both glad to be recognized for their ongoing work. We moved there and uh, a woman had planned to start it and she wasn't able to. And my wife, just being a good person, said, I'll, I'll try. And next thing you know, we had a couple hundred girls all across Ukraine learning technology and entrepreneurship skills. And so we've been doing this program everywhere we've been. This is our third continent that we've supported it on. Jerry Case is an eligible family member traveling with his wife who works in the Foreign Service. They're currently stationed in Turkmenistan, but Case won a SOSA award for his work at their last post in Dublin, Ireland. There, he created a project to refurbish more than 2,000 bicycles for Ukrainian refugees. Case is an avid biker himself and a retired National Park Service ranger. He says Ukrainians fleeing war in their home country arrived in Ireland with few options for getting around. And if they were fortunate enough to have a suitcase of clothes, that was a, a big deal. Kids need to go to school, and, and mom needs to find some work. And without a, a way to do that, other than public transportation, we provided them a, a great benefit in, in giving them a free bicycle. George Cornick is an EFM now stationed in Nairobi, Kenya. He's being recognized for his work in Kampala, Uganda. He's being recognized for mentoring youth at a refugee shelter. There, he taught teens life skills and job interview techniques. He also formed a step dancing group, which he says was a great way to get connected with the youth on the ground. By teaching them these steps, that's the plug to get them in to teach them more life skills. They were able to do very well, so I'm really proud of all of them. Mandy Brown is an EFM in Doha, Qatar. There, she's been working to support Afghan refugees. Brown is part of a group of volunteers called the Doha Do-Gooders. If that group sounds familiar, it's because another one of its members, Deborah Stock, received a SOSA award last year. As part of this group, Brown supports the local American school and the Cutter Little League, which gets local youth into baseball and softball. Foreign service life is all about travel and moving posts every two to three years. But Brown says this volunteer work is a great way to feel a part of the community. And I wanted to as well find a purpose and make a difference and feeling like being part of the community and volunteers that come together, it's just becomes family and it's a great way to get to know people, be part of the community and make a difference hopefully in someone's life. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, the National Endowment for the Arts takes the pulse of the U.S. appetite for the arts. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. Theaters, opera halls, concert venues were all hit hard by the pandemic. 
people didn't want to gather in close quarters. Well, to get a gauge on how and where people might now be participating in the arts once again, the National Endowment for the Arts, the NEA, focused on this topic in its most recent five-year survey. For more on the methodology and how the results guide NEA activities, we turn to the agency's Director of Research and Analysis, Sunil Iyengar. Mr. Iyengar, good to have you with us. Great to be here, Tom. Thanks. Well, first of all, this is an every five-year survey. Tell us the purpose and the aims of, of conducting a survey and who you conducted among. That's correct. Well, just to back up here, um, we are, of course, the National Endowment for the Arts, which is you know an independent federal agency that's charged with promoting access and opportunities to participate in the arts nationwide in all its all the different forms and ways of participating in the arts from creating art to learning about it to you know engaging through as an audience member and you know using technology and engaging with the arts that way so you know that's really in our remit and the way we support grants and initiatives around the country to do that work so to be a responsible federal funder one of the things we do of course is collect data and analyze it from time to time so we have actually had baked into our data collections since really the early 1980s believe it or not tom partnerships with the u.s census bureau whereby we you know we collect through audience through household survey data you know very reliable response rate very reliable um you know, survey frameworks where they, of course, capture the, you know, the diversity of the U.S. population and reflect it very well in the numbers. We managed to collect data on how Americans participate in arts activities. This is a survey of adults, 18 and over. And um, so the last most recent survey was in 2022. Again, the, the most the first survey was in 1982. So we've come a long way. And yes, we do it roughly every five years. And we use these data to report to the general public, to art, you know, arts practitioners, organizations, administrators, but also, as I say, the general public, including journalists like yourself, to understand how arts has evolved and have evolved in these in this country, and particularly how different people now are engaging with the arts and on different platforms and different venues. And that then in turn informs some of our work as an agency to sure. try to, you know, reach the most number of people in the most you know effective ways. And with respect to attending performances, say, is how most people come in contact with the arts or going to galleries, uh, that is, as consumers of art, have things mostly returned to the way they were in 2018, or has there been some alteration even with the mostly receded pandemic? Well, actually, Tom, it's interesting that the most common way people kind of get their art, so to speak, or engage with the arts is actually through consumption by digital media. That may be no surprise when you think about how many people listen to music you know, while driving or listen to the sh you know, wherever they are. But also other ways, you know, especially through new virtual opportunities to engage with the arts. So that's actually been fairly constantly the highest proportion of adults participating in the arts. So that's 75% of adults. Then, then you're correct. The next highest level, one of the next highest things, is is actually attending, say, a gallery or performance, or you know, um, through attending, visiting or attending events. Sure. And that that could also also be true of you know let me just be clear uh performing arts at festivals and you know outdoor activities so yes you're right as a composite those activities have actually declined since our last the survey prior to this which was in five years earlier in 2017 and that may not have surprised a lot of people um, but what i think was kind of startling is how certain art forms saw particularly precipitous you know kind of declines like in uh, theater for example going to theater where I think the rate of decline was something like 40% or higher. 
And you saw that also with other art forms like, you know, uh, dance and uh, some of those kinds of, you know, live arts events in the past. And we, you know, again, we weren't surprised you know, by how stark those declines are, especially when you think about the differences in demographic group participation. But um, I will say that there were two kind of counterpoints to that. One was people going to, you know, one of the things we capture are people visiting places to enjoy the design or architecture of a place. Or, um, you know, that can be true of, you know, buildings, monuments, or neighborhoods, but also kind of parks, national parks, and, or any other kinds of parks. Those kinds of activities actually stayed, you know, didn't, didn't take a very severe decline. It dipped a little bit, but was roughly the same in many respects. And I think that has to do, of course, with people's general comfort level with outdoor activities, perhaps, because a lot of those things are outdoors. You also yeah. noticed an interesting phenomenon, a decline, and this has been steady for a couple of surveys, 10 years, a decline in fiction reading. Yes, that's correct. So reading in general, we did see the you know, percentage of people reading books in general decline a little bit. But we also saw, as you say, a very steep decline over time. We've seen it in fiction reading, that is reading novels or short stories. So it's about 38% of adults now who do that, whereas in the past it was maybe over 50%. I, I say this because not to just to sort of be a worry word about it, but I think it's important to realize these trends can be reversed. Years and years ago, there was a similar dip. And for example, the NEA galvanized around a program called the Big Read, which is one of our national initiatives, which still is very strong. And it sort of supports these the idea of one book, one community, you know, efforts where there sure. are book clubs and participation activities around books and reading. And that, along with a variety of other factors, mobilization by libraries and, you know, literacy organizations and writers helped to drive up the reading rates a few years ago. So, you know, in, in fiction reading. So I think hopefully, you know, there's more going to be some more momentum around this and people recognizing right. that it's unacceptable to have such low rates of reading when we want to cultivate imagination, empathy, and all those capacities reading affords. We are speaking with Sunil Iyengar. He is Director of Research and Analysis at the National Endowment for the Arts. And we've been talking about the consumption side, and most of the consumers are not where grants go, but rather to creators. What are some of the trends revealed in 2022 survey on the art creation side. Probably yes, just so as much fiction being written as there was, even if nobody's <laughs> well, reading it. Yeah, we don't have as much, not to get too technical here, but we are talking to federal news networks. So I'll just say quickly that one of the things uh, to know is that although we have really good long-term trend data on the attendance side, when it comes to reporting on creating, some of those questions have varied over the years because of different explosive you know, new forms of creating art you know, as we all know, a lot of it through technology. So we haven't been able to retain the same questions for years and years. We've changed them. So it's harder to make year over year comparisons for creating art. That said, still a very healthy, more than half, 52% of adults did some sort of, sort of creating personal creation or performance of art, which is wonderful to know. And that also, you know, seems to have remained roughly constant, although we can't make definite comparisons. It looks like over the numbers from the previous five years, that's roughly the same. So it does suggest that, you know, healthy, substantial sure. portion of the U.S. population still creates art of their own. And that, of course, is extremely important to our chair's mission. And she keeps talking about not only, you know, understanding how art goers and going to arts events is a critical part of the arts ecosystem, but also people independently creating art, living artful lives, as she calls it, which could involve creating art or making, doing something with a design in your house or, you know, really informal, if I will, if I can say so 
ways of engaging with the arts that may not involve necessarily going right. off to, say, an opera performance in a really fine art symphony hall or something like that. That leads to the question of how all of this translates into, say, an activity like grant making. And let me just make up an example, ballet, sure. something I actually mm-hmm. don't know anything right. about. I mean, I'm impressed when I see right. ballet dancers. I don't know how the heck they do it, but they are quite talented. And let's say that the interest on the consumption side is going down for something like that. People don't watch ballet except at Christmas time, say. How would that translate back into grant making? I mean, how do you know whether to conclude, well, there's no sense in investing grants in this because it's a dying form? Or can we invest in this and revive this form? I mean, how does that all work? Yes. Well, I try to be humble and recognize that while we do collect data and try to analyze it and certainly integrate it in decision making for the agency with our senior leadership, we do have a statute and it's very clear about what we fund and we, in fact, have a criteria by which grants get work reviewed by citizen expert panels across the country. You know, so really something like ballet, just to take that example, it, any they would the projects would be reviewed on their individual excellence and merit, which are the two overarching criteria. And more recently, our chair has actually helped to modify the way we look at those criteria by understanding that when we say excellence, for example, they may not mean only say, excellence of the execution of a work, but the processes by which the work comes into being. So engaging with community members, for example, if it's relevant to the to the work, you know, there's a lot of in, increasingly there's a great deal of wor- artwork that now is, let's say, delving into other domains of human experience, whether it's arts and health or arts and education and, you know, trying to reach broader audiences. And so understanding the merits of the work and the excellence of the work has to do with uh, recognizing, you know, the sort of so what factor, like not only is the work, you know, excellent on its own terms, but is it in fact contributing to some maybe broader outcomes in the sense that uh, great works of arts invariably do. It really is up to the reviewers and it's not a decision that we make from the top down based on these data. Although I will add that what it tells us about demographic groups participating in different art forms helps us to shape our application guidelines, which then we hope gets us broader and more diverse portfolio of art projects to support. And just from a research standpoint, a technology standpoint, because as you say, we are Federal News Network here, is there any opportunity to get more fine-grained or larger volumes of data, given that so much consumption is digital? And for that matter, you know, ticket sales and all of this is all digital now. Most people don't even know what a box office is. (laughs) Is there a way to tap into social media, tap into things to to get an even more fine-grained picture of what's going on? So because this is a radio interview, I know I'm grateful that your listeners can't see me salivate at those prospects because I think that's really exciting. And we, of course, would want to try to find ways to tap that kind of data. Now, the thing is, you probably know, in a federal agency, we have to be careful. And, you know, our Office of General Counsel and others would probably be very judicious, no pun intended, in trying to understand how can we um, do this in a way that's, you know, through the rules to make sure we can enter into data agreements or partnerships that will allow us to obtain, say, private sector data or commercial data for those purposes. You know, a lot of them have licenses. Sure. And, maybe indemnity clauses and things like that, which we can't necessarily do. Another way to get around it in a sense is really, again, through these household surveys. So we actually had a parallel survey with this one, which we did through an agreement with the National Science Foundation, which allowed us to, it's called the General Social Survey. You may have heard of it. It's a major household survey. And within that, we added a module, an arts module that allowed us to understand how digital 
arts programming is received by people in the general community. So while it didn't come directly from, say, some of the streaming apps or from the data didn't come from those apps or from those software companies, it did come from individuals responding how they engage with digital arts. And so that told us a great deal. And one thing I can't resist saying is it shared with us is something we didn't really understand or know before, which is that a much more diverse demographic, let's say, racially, ethnically, even by gender and so forth, participated in digital art forms and said they increased their participation over the pandemic than kind of the standard groups that we see typically going to arts events. That is to say, the demographic profile of people who go to arts events, you know, in person was different from those who seem to be engaging more increasingly in uh, digital art forms. So it does tell us that people are getting their art in a variety of ways, and we have to be cognizant of the differences, not only demographic, but also socioeconomic, geographic variables that may affect people's participation in the arts. And that's where we can do our best job in terms of reaching the communities through our grant making that are underrepresented, which is, of course, a priority of the agency through its equity action plan. All right. Well, some interesting insight there about the art and how America consumes it. Sunil Iyengar is Director of Research and Analysis at the National Endowment for the Arts. Thanks so much for joining me. Great to be here. Thanks again. And we'll post this interview along with a link to the survey data at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, an award protest reaffirms you've got to treat all bidders equally. But first, a staff shortage doesn't mean you can hire just anyone. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The last thing the Veterans Health Administration needs is new employees who are substance abusers or felons with access to VA pharmacies. But the agency lacks a consistent procedure for finding out about such people from the Drug Enforcement Administration. According to the Government Accountability Office, the VHA in fact hired thousands of people who might have drug-related convictions. We get more now from GAO's Director of Forensic Audits and Investigations, Sato Bagdoyan. Sato, good to have you back. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me back. So this is a strange one because the VA has been using hiring authorities and salary authorities that it has, and they've had record levels of hiring in the last year and expect that to happen again this year. But what's going on here with respect to their requirement, I think, that they have to check with DEA on the background of certain employees? Right. So the issue there is employment waivers. Basically, if you have access to controlled substances, as well as a felony conviction, among other things, you may need a employment waiver through DEA. But as we found in our reporting and in the recent testimony I gave, VA does not have a policy for determining whether a waiver is necessary So essentially, as they did with the 50 people we identified from our projectable sample, they make those determinations on an ad hoc or arbitrary basis. So it really is a control weakness with potential dual risk, as I emphasized during my testimony, risk to the well-being of veterans, as well as risk of diverting controlled substances. So that's a serious matter. And you looked at the total population in VA, and I think there was something like 10,000 people, if I'm correct. Yeah, we started with a universe of about 400,000. This was the January to June 2020 period for our analysis. 
and we identified about 12,600 people who had criminal histories with controlled substance convictions. And of those, about 1,800 had felony convictions, at least one. So this is a, uh, you know, a risk-prone population. Of course, everybody deserves a chance to be employed once, uh, you know, they moved on from that history. But, uh, you know, it is, as I mentioned, uh, a serious risk if left unaddressed. And just to be clear, is the VA statutorily required to get waivers from DEA, or is there a policy that they're not following? That's a great question. There isn't a DEA requirement, believe it or not, even though the waiver issue has been in place since 1971, amended again in 1991. But there is no requirement for an agency to have such a policy. Of course, it is a prudent thing to do, to have a roadmap to make those determinations. But, uh, you know, with that mixed picture, VA basically decided they weren't going to have a policy. And who would make the decision? That is to say, if DEA doesn't give a waiver, then that means VA could not hire that person? Well, that's also a technical complication. I don't have a good answer for you on that one. It would be kind of an unbalanced consideration. But of course, VA would have to ask for a waiver, and that did not occur as far as we can tell. Right. And so therefore, it's a possible range of types of convictions that could be here. If someone had a small pot misdemeanor type of conviction, that's one thing. If they were a drug dealer and distributor and really rose up high in the substance class one type of conviction, that's another matter. And so there's some nuance here. Yeah. The nuance is you have to have access if you're an employee and DEA defines access more broadly than VA does. VA's is quite narrow. You have to have direct access to control substances and essentially be a prescriber. Whereas DEA says, well, those are good, but mere proximity or influence to control substances should also be considered. We're speaking with Seto Bagdoyan. He is Director of Forensic Audits and Investigations at the Government Accountability Office. Yeah, because there's also the subtlety of who within the VHA actually can have access, and they're locked, their pharmacies, and everything's barcoded. You just can't walk in and grab a shelf full of aspirin or anything. So there are people that may prescribe but they may not be the same people that actually go into the pharmacy and take things off the shelf Correct. and vice right. versa. Yep. So with that in mind, actually, an interesting statistic is that about 1,400 or so of 20,000 reports of theft or loss of controlled substances were reported by VHA. So that's about 7% of the total. These are, of course, reported. We don't know what's missed or unreported and so on. So the risk is there. We're focusing on the risk, not that something bad is going to happen, but if it were to happen, consequences would follow. Yeah, just finish that thought. 1,400 out of 20,000 reports of theft were what? From VA. These were reported to DEA for 2021. So the stats are pretty dated. Right, but this is all of the thefts of controlled substances anywhere. 7% of them are, well, VA is probably about 7% of healthcare delivery in the country. Yeah, 400,000 employees, they serve 9 million people through hundreds of facilities around the country. So the risk landscape is wide and deep. 
And what is VA's response to what you found? I mean, are they then in the process of instituting a policy of collaborating more with DEA? Yes, they actually reported at the hearing itself that uh, there is a draft policy being finalized for waivers that should be in an interim form next month, January 2024. We initially had a deadline of March 2024, so at least they'll have something in place that will provide them a roadmap to make these decisions and be far more attentive to it than to the waiver issue than they have been in the past. It sounds like VHA would like to retain that discretion over who it hires based, I'm guessing, on the nature of that conviction that actually took place. Again, someone that had marijuana is unlikely to do wholesale theft of Oxycontin, for example, whereas someone who had a different type of abuse, you know, might do that. Discretion is key, obviously, and that's a good thing. And the totality of the adjudication taking multiple factors uh, into consideration. But, you know, the, the risk is dangling there, and it is a significant one. Harm to veterans or diversion of controlled substances. And what was Congress's general reaction? I mean, it sounds like this would have maybe invoked something rarely a nonpartisan type of, geez, we got to nail this one down. Yes, yes, very good point. That did come out pretty loud and clear during the hearing itself. Everyone on the subcommittee, oversight and investigations, House Veterans Affairs turned up and asked good questions from both sides of the aisle. And essentially the direction to VHA was get this done, get it right and move on. And we're not even talking about the gaps in background investigations and hundreds of people wouldn't had not received background investigations. And VHA didn't know about that until we brought it to their attention. Yeah, they've got uh, like a -a whack-a-mole situation there. I think in an agency that big, there's always something popping up. Would it be accurate to say that the danger here of loss or theft of pharmacy products is bad? It's a financial loss. It's a legal liability, perhaps. But it doesn't sound like necessarily a patient danger type of issue unless something that someone needs is not there because it was stolen. Yeah. Yeah, that's a tough one for me to comment on. But, you know, anytime you're dealing with dangerous controlled substances, wandering off premises and ending up somewhere where they shouldn't, that is a danger. Perhaps it's not a danger to VA patients or staff for that matter. But as you said, if a medication is not available off the shelf to a veteran who needs it, then that is a care issue, which is the first part of the risk I, uh, I mentioned earlier. But in the meantime, you'll keep an eye on VHA to make sure that that April deadline for getting some type of process in place actually occurs. Yes. So next month, we'll see the interim policy that will make a determination on the extent to which it responds to a recommendation we've had in place since 2019. So by the time it comes out, it would have been about five years in the making. Seto Bagdoyan is Director of Forensic Audits and Investigations at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. We'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, an award protest reaffirms something basic. You've got to treat all bidders equally. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. 
The Government Accountability Office recently upheld the protest of a contract award from the Defense Intelligence Agency. DIA was hiring a small business to conduct counterintelligence training. It used a slightly unconventional approach to evaluating bidders, but the Source Selection Authority made a basic mistake. We get details now from attorney Zach Prince, a partner at Haynes Boone. And Zach, tell us about this case. Sure. Thanks for having me, Tom. Secure Offense was protesting an award uh, by DIA to a company called Dark Star Intelligence. DIA was purchasing off the GSA schedule uh, using eBuy, which is honestly a pretty interesting way to be uh, procuring counterintelligence training. But uh, in any case, uh, the, the agency did this through a two-step process where first you submit your proposal and they would do the compliance check to determine if your quote actually satisfies the labor category mapping and security requirements. And then assuming you passed, they would assess you based on technical approach and capability and price as two separate buckets. Price was a typical submitted uh, proposal submission. But for technical approach and capability, they wanted to do this only through oral presentations. And that's it. And they gave you in advance questions that you needed to address, you know, general categories, and then three specific scenarios. But there was no technical submission beyond this oral presentation you did. Right. So training and is kind of hard to show what you would do technically, I guess, unless it's presentations or something or simulations. And as far as the price was concerned, that was simply labor hours, right? Yeah, that's right. They were planning to make determinations of certain confidences based on your oral presentation, and then they would assess your price and make a best value trade-off. And one of the presentations you had to make as a bidder was what would happen if 25% of the staff quit and you were down staffing by to the 75% level, how you would continue to carry out the training. Yeah, that was one of the specific questions they directed offerers to discuss was uh, any mitigation strategies to reduce the risk, the negative impact of the training if you drop below the 75% level. And that's an important point because that was sort of the heart of the prevailing grounds, at least of this protest. A secure fence had argued that the agency irrationally uh, assessed it a lower confidence level uh, because it hadn't in its oral presentation addressed its mitigation strategy. GAO disagreed with that. They said, actually, you didn't address any mitigation approach for dropping below 75%. But there was disparate treatment. That is, they treated Darkstar and Secure Offense in a different fashion because Darkstar, the awardee, also failed to address this point. So it was rational for the agency to ding Secure Offense. They should have done the same to Darkstar, and that mattered a lot to uh, GAO's analysis. Right, because this was a sustainment, which only happens in, what, about 15 or 20 percent of the protests that are brought. Yeah, that's right. It's not very frequent. And it was an interesting sustain, too, because there are quite a few footnotes. Uh, you always see in the GAO decisions, these footnotes that say, you know, we, we actually did see all of your arguments. And we, to the extent we don't talk about them here, it's because they're meritless and we're dismissing them or whatever it is. Here, there are a couple of footnotes where they say, you know, either this could have been a ground for sustain, essentially, but we're, we're not ruling on this, but agency versus sustaining anyway, so really think about this. Or, you know, the agency didn't deal with this at all in the protest. So again, since we're making the agency go do it again, think about addressing these points and try to make this better next time. Interesting. So it almost says that when you protest, submit a variety of grounds, hoping that one will stick. That is absolutely always the GAO strategy, that you throw everything at the wall and 
you know, frankly, you very rarely win on the initial grounds you go in on because you're doing it blind. You don't get the record until after you submit your protest. And then you have to try to find something there that's the basis for sustain, particularly at GAO. At, at the court, it's, I think, a little bit more targeted. We're speaking with procurement attorney Zach Prince, a partner at Haynes Boone. And we should also point out that the dark horse initially winning bidder was slightly higher priced than secure offense. Not a whole lot more, but half a million dollars or so. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it was about 2% of the overall price, so it wasn't a huge deal, but they were higher priced. And yeah, price was of less value or importance to the agency than technical approach and capability, but it mattered enough that GAO found prejudice uh, in the event that the agency had not made these errors that it could have gone to secure offense. Right. So it must have had some other reason for liking Dark Star Intelligence, and therefore it sort of skipped over, the agency that is, skipped over the idea of looking at the mitigation strategy for a staffing shortfall differently in the two vendors. Yeah. And they had other reasons. The agency had other reasons that they uh, gave Dark Star some higher confidence. But GAO also found that those were problematic, or at least one was, that the retention of incumbent personnel that was addressed in both oral presentations. Darkstar got credit. GAO noted that secure offense didn't, which is, again, disparate treatment. Yeah, so the lesson then would be for the agency to do what the next time? The agency has got to be very careful that it's evaluating proposals in an even-handed way, strictly based on requirements, only things that are actually written there, not things the agency had meant to say or thought it was implied but what it actually says is your evaluation criteria and make sure that when they're assigning a risk to one entity for something that is present in the other proposal, that they're also assigning a risk to that other entity. Uh, another issue that got a little bit screwed up, I think, on the agency's part was they had a technical evaluation finding of a lower confidence due to a factor that was not ultimately in the source selection decision. But GAO thought that that mattered enough. It was clearly a problem. That is, it was disparate treatment, and it could have influenced the decision, even though the source selection decision set didn't. So I think the agency has got to be very careful in how it documents why it's making its decisions. Right. So the lessons are then, if you have something that you are evaluating people in a critical manner on, make sure that you look at them exactly equally and don't introduce something to favor one or disfavor one that you don't apply to everybody. Kind of basic. Yeah, that's, that's right. And, and the contractor side, you know, it's the same lesson. The contractor should always be taking from these types of decisions. Read the requirements very carefully. Make sure you're actually responding to the agency's requirements. And if you have questions, ask them in advance because that's the time to do it. Don't make assumptions that you know what the agency means it's shocking to me how few people uh, can read critically. <laughs> uh, maybe it shouldn't be at this point, but you know, if you have questions, you think it means this, maybe get a second pair of eyes on it. Make sure that that's correct. Well, in oral presentations like this, is there that type of back and forth permitted? And can you say in an oral presentation, well, what did you precisely mean by this? But then, of course, you've already made your bid. Second question is, is it possible to amend your offer after you get clarification in an oral presentation? It really depends on how the agency structures it. I mean, I would think that that comes in the Q&A, right? And that's before you go to your oral presentation, because effectively that is the bid submission. 
uh, the agency doesn't have to let you change your bid. And I don't get the impression here that the agency was going to let anybody change their bid. You've made your presentation. Right? There's no written submission you're resubmitting. So what's the purpose of oral then, I wonder? I'm not sure. I think it was that the agency wanted a chance to probe the offerers and, and see sort of live, here's the scenario, here's some questions, how are you going to deal with this? And they felt they'd get a better sense for the real life experience that they were likely to have doing it that way. Which is pretty darn subjective when you think about it. <laughs> it is. It absolutely is. But a lot of the process, you know, we try to say that there's objectivity in a lot of these procurements, but of course it comes down to people and people are making decisions and agencies are stacked with human beings who need to deal with the contractors, you know, in reality for the next year or five. Sure. And now this protest has been upheld, which means the award can't go forward. Yeah. I, I mean, unless the agency decides to uh, override the SECA stay, which is not going to happen. Realistically, the agency is going to go back and reevaluate the proposals and make sure they're consistent with RFQ and with uh, GAO's recommendation here. And they do have ways of getting what they really want agencies. <laughs> yeah, they do. I, I wouldn't be shocked if it goes back to Dark Star anyway. That happens in a lot of cases. Procurement attorney Zach Prince is a partner at Haynes Boone. As always, thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. 57 past the hour. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and The Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Temin. Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, December 20th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of the Federal Drive, a real staff shortage doesn't mean you can just hire anyone. Plus, the National Endowment for the Arts takes the pulse of the U.S. appetite for the arts. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, contrary to popular belief, the Pentagon really can buy and field things quickly when it needs to, including very complicated things. But rapid acquisition often comes with some pitfalls, like difficulty integrating new items with existing systems and networks. The Army Futures Command wants to make rapid acquisition part of its regular routine, and leaders think they've figured out how to avoid some of these downsides. We get details now from Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. There are some big examples of the U.S. military conducting complicated acquisition projects very quickly. Maybe the most famous is DOD's rapid fielding of mine-resistant ambush-protected vehicles during the war in Afghanistan. 
The downside was it took a full-court press by the Pentagon's most senior leadership to make the acquisition system work as quickly as it needed to. Then there's the hundreds of new communications capabilities the military rolled out to troops during the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. Commanders got them fielded via urgent operational needs statements. The downside there is they didn't always fit into or scale with the military's longer-term needs, which has led every Army CIO for the past decade to complain about integration challenges. But Army Futures Command is thinking about rapid acquisition in a way that's meant to avoid those problems, according to General Jim Rainey, AFC's commander. The need to transform, be agile, be adaptive uh, inside the next two years, 18 to 24 months. Because we want to go fast, but you can't go so fast that you just dump kit on formations. You know, we got to think a little bit about training, sustainment, leader development. But but the ability reestablishing the Army's ability to see something. I'm not talking about rapid capability development, but but of something that exists, the ability to go out and get that in a meaningful way. And we've written some directed requirements on that. But the bottom line is there are things that are absolutely available and doable in the world right now that, that we don't have in our formations and we need. So we are taking a different approach. I want to buy capabilities, not systems. One of the first capabilities the Army is targeting with that new approach is loitering munitions, sometimes called suicide drones. It's a type of unmanned aerial vehicle that can stay in one area for a long period of time and attack when needed. Rainey says the demand signal for now is coming mainly from the Army's Special Forces community, but AFC also wants to send a clear demand signal that, over time, it's going to want to buy the same types of capability at a larger scale, just not all at once. Another area where Rainey thinks the approach fits well is new capabilities to counter opposing forces on manned systems. The Army's going to buy a bunch of them, but we only want to buy three brigade combat teams at a time. So the capability doesn't change over time, but I want to I recompete that every 18, 24 months and buy it in tranches so that we make sure we have the best capability. So it depends on where on that continuum and what system you're talking about. Counter UAS right now, uh, anything that works, that is trainable and is not landlocked. UAS is UAS and we're never gonna have enough. It's gonna be like IEDs. It's gonna be a character of the future of war it's going to be a condition of the future battlefield. But the problem is everything we got now, you got to wire it into the ground. And that's not how we fight. So the maneuver warfare versus sitting around taking rounds and fighting UAVs and missiles one at a time, I, we got to have a mobile capability. And the Army's new approach to rapid acquisition might be characterized as much by what it doesn't buy as what it does. Rady says AFC has some safeguards in place to make sure it avoids those problems of the past, buying numerous small lots of proprietary systems that are difficult to integrate into a formation. When we look at something and say, hey, we need this, before we decide to take the rapid acquisition approach, do we have a plan to transition this to program a record? Like, I wouldn't sign up for rapid acquisition of something if we didn't have a transition and landing spot for it. So that's one. A bigger one is, you know, if you have to make a new soldier, you know, a new MOS, if you have to build a training facility, if it comes with a big motor pool backside sustainment thing, that's not a reason to not do it, but that automatically puts it in the deliberate modernization category. So by definition, if something had a monstrous integration challenge, 
I wouldn't go after it from a rapid acquisition. I'd take a little more deliberate, slow and steady approach. But Rainey says that's what makes something like loitering munitions so attractive for a rapid acquisition pipeline. Since they're essentially kamikaze drones, they're expendable by nature, and the Army can think of them in the same way it thinks about any other munition. And if it acquires them properly, they'll fit into formations that way too. Their mortar platoon that they already have could shoot it. Their weapons company that they already have could shoot it. A good rifle squad could shoot it. General Kaufman's going to put it on a payload that can be on a robot that one of the soldiers in one of the tanks in a tank company that's already there could employ. Same thing with the UAS. We can't rapidly acquire a UAS if it needs a platoon of soldiers and a launcher and a backside FSR support system. But we can buy a company, we can go out and buy an attributable UAS system that shows up through the class nine system, so replacement parts, not end items, and the company gets it, employs it, and if they crash it, they crash it. Rainey says that's not to say there still aren't dangers to moving quickly. One of them might be rapidly acquiring too many disparate systems and handing them off to Army units all at once. Is it possible to do so much rapid acquisition that some of three or four or five things exceeds the capacity of a unit to receive it? That That is a valid concern that we're paying attention to. Jared Serbu, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, the National Endowment for the Arts takes the pulse of U.S. appetite for the arts. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.